Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Milzaff, Deputy Features Editor at Billboard and Broadway fan here. So just like in pop music, the star songwriters in musical theater aren't often uh, necessarily seasoned performers themselves. Uh, They make their visions known through the voices of basically more famous people who are trained as vocalists uh, in the shows and individual songs they write. But there are some composers who perform their own music, both not just sitting at the piano, but vocally. And my guest today, Jason Robert Brown, is one of them. He is one of the most revered and consistently inventive writers in modern musical theater right now. He has a sort of expansive palette of sounds he uses, often piano-driven, often incorporating the kind of melodic verve of pop music uh, that he's brought to a really diverse range of shows. Those include The Bridges of Madison County, which won him two Tony Awards, Honeymoon in Vegas, Parade, The Last Five Years, which is this amazing two-person show that has kind of become a contemporary classic. It's a look at a disintegrated relationship in reverse that was made into a movie recently with Anna Kendrick. And the show 13, which in its 2008 Broadway premiere actually starred a very young Ariana Grande. But that all is really just one side of what Brown does. He just released his third solo album called How We React and How We Recover. It was over 10 years in the making, and it's really a perfect sampling of what makes his music so great. His ability to engage with real-world problems and the struggles of real people in a very organic way, his dexterity with creating these very vivid character sketches through music, uh, and really the sheer sort of singability of his melodies. They, They really do stick in your head. Uh, I was extremely excited to have Jason Robert Brown on this week's episode. Uh, We talked about his new music, his exciting career thus far, uh, what he has coming up, and we, of course, talk about Ariana, too. You think this isn't what I'm meant to be. You don't know my secret identity. Here I go, look at me. There's a lot I can be, but I won't be invisible. Here I go. I would like to start by saying, I mean, the, the purpose of this podcast is to show how, how much overlap there is now between the pop music and the Broadway worlds. And I feel like you are kind of a perfect person to be talking to as someone who has so smoothly in all of your work integrated kind of pop sounds into theater and made it part of the modern musical lexicon. So I wanted to start by asking, going way back, when you were growing up and when you first kind of had the sense that you'd like to be a songwriter, what were you listening to and and who were the singers and composers that made you think this is something I want to do? Um, I think the obvious answer is the Billy Joel and the Beatles and Stevie Wonder. I, I, particularly Paul Simon always seems to... I, I find when I listen to... Paul Simon albums that I grew up on, I think, oh God, I stole that phrase. I stole it, it like happens over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, Carol King, uh, and and then by the time I got to college, uh, Joni Mitchell uh, very much became my touchstone. But I think you know, if you want to go way back, it's really, I mean, and it's for everyone my age. I think it's you know what my dad's record collection was. Um, so there was a fair amount of the Beatles floating around in there, and then there was, you know, a. Gershwin albums and Leonard Bernstein, and you know, I, I just think I would never be who I am if I didn't have the eclecticism of 
all of that music floating around. There was a lot of jazz in my house and there was a lot of classical music in my house. And not that my parents were musicians or even listened to music that much, but my dad had, when he was in college, amassed a, a bunch of records in his library and I just used to take them all out and listen to them all the time. Mm-hmm. Billy Joel is someone who comes up on this podcast a lot. What, why do you think he's such an inspiration to both actors and writers in musical theater? You know, I think his stuff is... It's easy to, I don't mean it's easy to play on the piano. I mean, it's easy to play uh, as a performer because there's a lot there to mine. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of emotional content to play with and the the melodic stuff is all sort of easy. And it's, you know, it was just, for my generation, it was, it sounded like what we thought we were supposed to sound like. It was kind of rock and roll, but it was kind of smart and it was, you know, kind of harmonically interesting, but also kind of not too far out there and uh you know it was even when he got really aggressive it was never like anything you wouldn't want your mother to listen to also (laughs) you know it was it was a sort of it was as polite as you could get and still be as far out on that edge and so i think we all felt edgy listening to billy joel records and so if you think about the population of musical theater people they're the kind of people who would think that billy joel was edgy you know (laughs) That is true. I feel like there was a moment when I thought Billy Joel was edgy growing up too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting to hear you mention Paul Simon because I was I was listening to the uh, your record again yesterday and Melinda is one of my favorite songs on it. And that really sounds like the world of Paul Simon to me very much like that sort of 70s New York characters. Like it really conjured that for me. Yeah. No, that was definitely – I mean I think late in the evening is the obvious uh, mm-hmm, totally. antecedent to it. but. Uh, not that I was consciously drawing that because when I was working on the song, I was just thinking of the characters and thinking of the world and, and what all that was. But I hear it now and I think, oh, right. You know, I wouldn't know how to do half of what I do if it weren't for just uh, those Paul Simon records. I, you know, I think it it shows up in that song. But I think it's uh, it equally shows up even in things like the sound of the record, the, the um, something like Invisible, which on – you know, on someone else's record, I eventually hope will turn into, you know, a big disco, rompy, groovy thing. I thought that doesn't feel honest to me. And what's great about the Paul Simon albums and the Joni Mitchell albums also is that they feel very true to who those writers are. And no matter what genre they start drifting off into, it never goes so far into that that it sounds like a pastiche. And so I wanted to make sure that Invisible sounded like what I do, which is a bunch of musicians all in the room together just making music. Um, and so all of the songs, I think, have that aesthetic behind them, this this feeling that it should be very much alive. You should feel the air in the room. You know, I didn't want to make a an overly compressed record. I didn't want to make a, a sort of overly busy record. I wanted you to be able to feel the people breathing together. Mm-hmm. As you were kind of coming up as a composer, was there ever a moment where you felt like the pop world and the theater world are very separate things or were were they always sort of places with interchangeable sounds to you that, that that it felt like there weren't those kinds of rules? I think I felt it was more uh, permeable I don't know, 30 years ago than I feel it is now. I mean, um, mm-hmm. I just, I wouldn't know how to write what is contemporary pop music. You know, when I've spent any time with Ariana, uh, you know, who I got to collaborate on a song with. And, you know, so I I got to see her world a little bit from the inside. And I had also had a a publishing contract uh, when I lived in L.A. that was, again, meant to sort of 
lead me towards writing pop hits. Mm -hmm. And the whole process was so divorced from the way that I like to make music and so divorced from the way that I feel music that I thought I, it's not whether I could do it or not do it. It doesn't feel genuine to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it feels genuine to the people who do it. I mean, some of them, the good ones, obviously. I think it feels genuine. It feels genuine to Ariana. And so I, uh, I'm not as confident as I was that, oh, I could just write a, a pop song. You know, I think when I started in the business, I thought, well, you know, some of these songs will get picked up by other singers and they'll go from being Broadway tunes to being pop tunes. And I don't, I don't uh, harbor particular illusions of that happening anymore. If it does happen, I'm not going to be upset about it. It could but, happen. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I wanted to just go to one moment in your early career that I was, as I was going down my JRB spiral, um, preparing for this, I didn't know, I guess, I think... <laughs> I'm it, going down my JRB spiral. I've gone say, down well, that's, many JRB it, spirals uh, before. <laughs> <laughs> what an idea. Um, but I saw that your, I think technically your first Broadway job was as a rehearsal pianist on, because of the Spider-Woman, the original production, and I just wanted to hear a little bit about that and... I can't imagine what a kind of amazing learning experience that would be. It was, you know, I uh, I had gotten to New York and I had met Daisy Prince. Uh, and so Daisy and I were hanging out together and we were trying to come up with what our show was going to be so we could work together. And so we were working on songs for a new world. But it meant that I was always around her dad's office and it meant that I was always around her family. And her dad is very, you know, protective and very much into family as a concept. And so he really took me on. And like any 22-year-old who just moved to New York, of course, I couldn't pay the bills. I couldn't, you know, I needed a job. And he said, you know, do you want to come work on Kiss of the Spider-Woman? And I thought, yes. I mean, I, you know, that's, I, yes, of course I would like to do that. Um, and so when Kiss of the Spider-Woman came to Broadway, it had already been in Toronto and London. So it was largely about remounting uh, a production that already had existed with all the same actors for that matter. Mm -hmm. So I was plugging into something that had already existed and was a, a, a very well-running machine. The, th the thing I remember the most about it that really, like the, oh, I guess I'm in the real big time now, I'm in a, is I remember Hal walking through the theater and sitting in all of the seats on the farthest edges of the orchestra to see if he could actually see everything he needed to see on stage. <laughs> and as he couldn't, he would move things on stage until nobody had a bad sight line. <laughs> and I thought, well, of course you have to do that. But I'd never, it never occurred to me that Hal Prince would sit there and go by himself and sit along all the edges and, and make sure. And I was, I was very moved by that and sort of inspired by that. You have to get the work done. You have to take care of it. Hal wasn't doing the show so that only 50 seats in the center of the theater could see it. He wanted to make sure everyone who bought their ticket was getting the same experience. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the room like that with actors on this very like day-to-day -day kind of work-a-day feeling basis, is that informative for you as a composer too to see kind of like what nuances need to be adjusted working with singers every day? Singers are different in performance than they are in rehearsal. And in rehearsal, mm -hmm. they – they're always trying things. Uh, and so you see them sort of lean in one direction and you want to help them go towards where they're going or say to them, oh, that isn't at all what I intended. So I find that rehearsal time is this beautiful time to really shape what a what a what an actor's line through a piece is. Once you get into performance, it's a very different thing because while they'll still occasionally try things or they might sort of bounce in, in different directions, what they're largely trying to do is to 
experience. You know, they don't want to discover, they want to experience, they want to be up there and to feel their way through this experience the same, not the same way they had it last night, but to experience it as viscerally as they did the night before. And so that's a very different process. They're not exploring the text. They are sort of putting on the same outfit and trying to make it look like they never wore it before. Mm -hmm. And uh, I find both of those very instructive uh, and very, they're very powerful and very beautiful in their own way to see. But for me as a writer, um, I'm much less interested in the performance aspect, whereas the rehearsal aspect is the time where I feel like for me as a writer, I get to make the piece what I see in my head and to collaborate with all these other heads and, you know, get, get something out that feels again, the closest to what I imagined it to be. Once it's up there and running, if we got it, we got it. And if we didn't get it, I just wish everybody luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's something that distinguishes you is you perform your own music and that's not something all composers or even lots of composers do. And you, you have a very nice voice. Um, <laughs> sometimes, I mean, I, I've certainly watched videos of composers singing their own work before, but it's not always performance quality, I guess. Um, were you always comfortable performing your own work publicly? Or? Well, I think that's the thing about the Billy Joel thing. I, I was equally open to being a piano man as I was to being a Broadway composer. Mm -hmm. I didn't know they were mutually exclusive when I started out. So I always hoped I would get to a point like the one I'm at now where I could do both, where I could, you know, just if I want to go do a concert, I can do a concert. And if I want to write a show, I can write a show. But it took me a long time to make that balance work. Even now, they're two very, very different careers. And I find the when I put a lot of energy into one, I'm taking energy away from the other one and I'm like oh god what am I you know so there's still a lot of balance that has to be had but for me the performing is very central to the writing they do come from the same impulse when I write I'm writing for someone to perform it and I think because I'm a performer I understand what that is mm -hmm. so I like to think that the songs are challenging but performable you know what I mean I like <laughs> to think that there is always if I can't make sense of it, then I don't ask another actor to make sense of it. If I if I am going to be able to bring it to life, then I'm going to expect another actor to be able to bring it to life, you know, because I've worked through it. I know what it's supposed to be. I know what it can be. You don't have to do it the way I did it. But you can't say to me, oh, we can, I, I don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. with, well, just, you know, bring yourself to it and, and, and make it work. Um, and when I come up against really good performers who – seem to have a lot of trouble with a song, then I really do sit back and I think, all right, can I really do this? Or is this something where I've written something that even I don't know how to do? And so I have to trust that, you know, that person's response that Kelly O'Hara says to me, oh, this doesn't feel right to me. And I have to sit back and say, all right, I have to trust that because you want to trust the people you're working with. Yeah. And so, you know, when you get people like Kelly or, or Shoshana Bean or you get people like, you know, Stephen Pasquale or you get Brent Carver, these, you know, these fantastically gifted performers, when they have trouble making sense out of something, I, first of all, I'm glad that I have the advantage of being able to say, well, here's how I know how to make it work. Mm -hmm. But also I have the advantage of saying, all right, I trust you. Let me listen to what your process is and see if that means I want to go back in and rewrite this and readdress this and, and make it come into something. Interesting. Well, 
as I was listening to this album and seeing that, you know, it's been 10 years since your last solo album. 14. 14. Yeah, that's a long time. Um, I sort of wondered when you when you sit down to write, are you more often thinking of a song as part of a project, as part of a show? Or is it merely I have an idea. This is a song. I'll see where it ends up later on. I, no, I can't write for the shows without knowing what I'm writing. You know what mm. I mean? The, the shows tend to be so specific. The musical vocabulary is very specific. The character's vocabulary is very specific. So I, 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 if I've got a show that I'm in the middle of writing, I know what my jobs are and, the, oh, I have to write this song mm-hmm. for that. You know, uh, and that takes as long as it takes, which is forever. And, you know, I, I, I do that. Um, but writing songs for this album wasn't, that much different in the sense that I'm still writing for a project. The project just happens to be me. Mm-hmm. And so I know what the musical vocabulary of me is and I know what my character's vocabulary is because I sort of am living in a very specific place as a performer. Um, and I, there are definitely different places I can go and things that I can do on this album that I can't do in the shows. And those are largely about ways I can stretch out musically and just, you know, I, the one thing I can't ever express as a Broadway composer is the fact that I'm a, you know, I'm an improvising pianist. And so there's not much room to do that in a Broadway musical, yeah. but that's one of the things I love to do. And one of the things that I think pulses through my music is that energy of improvising musicians and what do musicians do if you just let them make their own decisions about where to go and what to do. So I think the stuff I write for myself has a lot more room in it for that. The Broadway stuff, you sort of have to lock it down a lot more uh, so that the actors know what is supporting them. Mm -hmm. So the songs on this album, did they accumulate over that long period of time or did they they come into focus? The original idea was to do an album every year. Uh, You know, I did wearing someone else's clothes and I really thought, all right, let's let's just get started on the next one. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm in addition to the shows, I'm going to write albums. And uh, so there are, there's at least one track that one more thing than I can handle. We did. That was a session that we did a year after the album came out, and it was going to be the first track, you know, that I did for the next album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over the years, I would keep doing more sessions and keep doing more things. And so I had accumulated a lot of songs by 2015. Uh, and I kept thinking all through that time, all right, now it's time to finish the album. Now it's time to finish the mm-hmm. album. Now it's time to finish the album. But there was always another project that was in the way of it. And albums, you know, as anyone sitting in this room is well aware, you know, it's not like they're big money-making prospects for me. So it was always a thing that was going to be on the side of uh, mm-hmm. the other stuff I was doing. And in between all of that, I was raising kids and I was moving from Los Angeles back to New York and I was putting up 13 and then I was putting up Bridges and then I was putting up Honeymoon in Vegas. And so eventually it just, I turned around and it had been, you know, 10, 11, 12 years between albums. So uh, the one more thing that I can handle is in fact the only track that comes from a separate set of sessions uh, because we did those, like I said, in 2006. Mm -hmm. But uh, everything else... Because I'd been doing these subculture concerts, I had now a band of musicians who knew how to breathe with me. And we had been doing these songs in performance, and I had built a bunch of these songs on them. So then we just went into the studio for a week and just made music, you know, with all of these musicians, made new tracks and had a whole different idea of how to conceive of the sound. So there is sort of 
an entire alternate version of this album <laughs> that uh, you know was recorded over the years with different songs, different musicians in different places. But uh, by the time we finally came time to make it, I thought, no, the point is to say where I am now at this point in my life, and so mm-hmm. uh, I play differently and I sing differently, and you know, and I I hear records differently than I did back then. So we had to sort of start from scratch, but. It was worth it. Well, it's interesting because some of the songs feel so clearly influenced by, like, the current political moment. Others seem more kind of timeless in terms of being, like, whether they're character sketches or kind of psychological windows into someone's mind. Um, But, you know, I I think looking at um, uh, a song like A Song About Your Gun – I think like, wow, how do you take a like current issue and make it into a song that works and doesn't feel like you're teaching something or that it's only a ripped from the headlines kind of thing? Um, I mean, because that's I think it will be relevant long beyond the presidency well, we're currently I, in. <laughs> I hope it will not be. But yes, I suspect it will. Um, you know, the, I think you can always smell a song that feels hectoring, you know, that that feels like it's just yelling at people. And so even the most political work that I'm going to write, and obviously this administration has dragged a lot of very political feelings out of me, but even the most political work I write is still going to be very much informed by something personal. You know, I don't I don't presume to speak about the state of the world. I haven't the vaguest idea what that means, but I feel entirely comfortable speaking about the state of me mm-hmm. and how I feel living in this particular world. And so I think as long as I can keep it centered on a thing that's very specific to me, a thing that feels like, you know, I have to be comfortable singing it every night and I do a song about your gun and I've done it in Dallas and I've done it in Arizona and, you know, I've done it in front of audiences that do not want to hear it. But mm-hmm. uh, it's not a song that says, uh, you know, you're bad people or that, you know, Guns are inherently dreadful things, you know. But what it just says is, this is how I feel about it. This is I am incapable of singing the uh, singing a song in praise of something that, you know, does so much damage. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, as you as you kind of get at in the title of the album too, I think the overall tenor of it is hopeful and not like what a horrible place we're in right now. You know, it's it's hopeful with an asterisk. I think I'm uh, I'm too Jewish not to be a little bit ambivalent about all of that. But, uh, you know, I would rather be hopeful. I think we would all rather be hopeful because otherwise, what are we doing? So I would, you know, I would rather hope that we're going to get out of this mess and eventually be better for it. I would, you know, I would rather that be the case. And so I think I'm writing, you know, as I did with Songs for a New World, I think I'm writing for a time when things are going to be better. You know, I'm writing in the hope that as a community comes together, uh, it ultimately finds its best self instead of its worst. Mm-hmm. Um, I It was weird to be doing Songs for a New World this summer because, you know, to be look at, to look at me examining those themes as a 20, 21, 22, 23-year-old Versus this album, which I was, you know, just putting the finishing touches on as a 48-year-old. And, you know, there is something in me that is still the same. You know, there is still this same sort of uh, desperately hoping creature in there. Uh, But I'm now a much older desperately hoping creature. (laughs) I like that thought. Um, 
I have to say that as a, I mean, as a fan of yours, I was very excited to see uh, the last five years become a movie, which I feel like it's not something that happens to many musical theater composers these days. Um, and, and it made me think about your work as a whole. I mean, the shows you've done have been, have been so diverse in subject matter and in sound. I feel like I can't say, well, there's a Jason Robert Brown sound and that's what all his shows sound like. I mean, like Bridges is extremely like lyrical and sweeping and Honeymoon in Vegas is incredibly like jazzy and upbeat. And um, I'm curious when you look at sort of the totality of your work, does it surprise you that a show like The Last Five Years became as big as it did? Are there shows that you thought were going to be huge that were not or shows that you didn't think would do anything that became a really big deal for you? I think the uh, the only weird one is Honeymoon in Vegas, which <laughs> I love so much and which we all loved and which we got these great reviews. And it just seems to have sort of disappeared down the turnpike someplace. I, I don't know what happened with that because I, I still have hope that it sort of makes its way into the world. But I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, but as far as the last five years was concerned, I always did feel like it tapped something. You know, first of all, it felt very... Uh, it felt like it was tapping into something in myself that was very raw and very real. And I thought, if I can actually distill that emotion into something on stage, then that's sort of among the things you go to the theater for. You go to the theater to feel something that deeply. And so I, I sensed while we were doing it, uh, even in Chicago, even before we came to New York, I thought, oh, no, I did what I said I was going to do. I actually I managed to, to tap into that. So I thought, well, then that's a good that's a good sign. You could feel the audience sort of uh, reaching towards it. Um, so, I, you know, I've always loved how portable it is. You know, I always love it. It's just, it's two people. Say, and, it you travels know, well. <laughs> it's, and it's, you know, it's two people who have to be unbelievably good, but it's still, it's just two people. And uh, so I've always, uh, I've always hoped it would be what it turned into. It was weird when it first happened that, it, it sort of didn't make much of a, a, a ripple at all when we first did it in New York. And that was partly, I guess, because it was just after 9-11 and it was partly the theater we were in. Or, but, you know, who knows what any of the mm -hmm. uh, story was. But I've been obviously uh, not just gratified but uh, relieved uh, that it has made its way into the world to be the piece that it is now. It's uh, obviously it's a piece that means so much to me. But uh, I think, you know, I... Bridges of Madison County has also like sort of gone into the world and gotten to be this this big thing. Thirteen is a show where our original production was very fraught and very difficult, and you know the Broadway run here was very hard. Um, but the minute that the show closed, I said, "We're going to be fine." This piece, you know, there are people who want to see this piece and want to do this piece and want to live this life. So I love the way that Thirteen has gone out in the world. I mean, there's there's always some college and high school and junior high school or you know little group doing it, and it's mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's the show that my my daughter, who's now thirteen, when she was three, that was when it opened on Broadway. And so she, that was the first show she ever saw on Broadway. She used to sit in the last row of the theater with me so she could go to the bathroom if she got bored, you know. And and, uh, <laughs> and it's her show. She's seen it, you know, probably 20 times in different productions throughout the years because I just, anytime I go see one, I'm like, oh, well, I'll just take my daughter to come see it with me. Um, so I, I'm always very gratified by 13. It's, a, it's, it's just, it's a fun show that I love. But Parade also has a, 
an interesting influence in the world. I think there are people who really connect to parade, but more importantly, they think of parade as being significant. They think of it as being important, which I did, you know, and when we wrote it. Um, it has something that, I, let's say, it explores something that has not disappeared in the American psyche. You know, I think the the issues, the political issues of it and the emotional issues of it are uh, are still obviously very much alive in this country, especially right now. Yeah. And it's been it's been good to have that piece out in the world. People say to me, oh, are you going to write a, a you know, a, a piece about America about right now? You know, because the, the new album obviously is explicitly political in a lot of ways. And are you going to write something like that? And I think, no, I already did. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. what Parade talks about exactly the issues that we're all still in the middle of. I was going to say that I, I, I keep feeling like it's time for Parade to come back. Like it might be a good time for a new Parade production. I, well, I felt that for a while, but certainly now it feels particularly uh, raw. Uh, so I would like it. I, you know, I knock on wood that it could happen. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about 13, I do want to ask you a little bit about your longstanding creative and uh friendship and uh, partnership with Ariana. She's Billboard's 2018 uh, Women in Music Woman of the Year, by the way. Very good. Um, and uh, I would just love to hear about, you know, when you first met her on 13 and and how your relationship has kind of progressed from there, because it seems really rare to me the way that she, you know, continues to sing your music, continues to give you credit in a way that I think a lot of pop stars, unfortunately, would not. Um, it's impressive. I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I remain amazed by it all the time. <laughs> you know, what I always say is it didn't take me to discover Ariana. She was going to be discovered. You know, she was, she's that, she's that talented. She was always that talented and always that driven. It was the thing she always wanted to do is to sing. Um, and so she came in for an audition. I, you know, I vaguely remember the audition, but all I remember is she sang probably like three bars and I was like, oh, she's fine and let's call her back. You know? <laughs> and then I remember the, there's a section in the opening number where all the kids are supposed to sort of have an improvised riff at the end of it. And so we auditioned all the kids and, you know, all the kids did their best. And, you know, some of them had nice riffs and some of them were like, oh, no, that's not what I do. And then I think literally the last person around the piano was Ariana, who then unleashed this thing. And we were all like, (laughs) oh, well, this is stupid. (laughs) You know, why are any of us even trying? Uh, And so she was just this enormously gifted person. She was this tiny, tiny little unbelievable voice so you know why wouldn't we have cast her i mean you know if that comes in and auditions for you great we found a spot for ariana grande all the subsequent stuff that happened which obviously i had nothing to do with the tv show or the you know the youtube following that she started building up and uh, then eventually the getting signed and you know, the first single, which was not a, a, what she wanted it to be. And so then retrenching entirely and delaying the album for a year and a half so she could figure out what she wanted it to be. Those were all really brave and really scary things to do. But she had a vision for who she wanted to be in the world. When she finally got to be what I always knew was going to be Ariana Grande, you know, I didn't expect that I was going to still have a relationship with Ariana because I thought, well, now she's, you know, she's moved into this other echelon in the whole other world than the the one that I live in. And so I was always surprised when she would reach out to me and she'd say, oh, you want to come and meet me and we'll sing or you want to come to a party or, you know, and and I'd be at the party and all of a sudden she'd say, oh, no, go to the piano. I want to do. And she, I think she, she is someone who wants very much to feel grounded. And I think 
pop star life conspires against grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it's tricky, but I think it's why, you know, she always travels with her mom and her brother. I mean, you know, she's like, she always is very connected to her family because I think she knows that the world she's in can be very disorienting and she doesn't want to be, you know, a statistic. And so what she has done instead is stay in complete control. And so when she brings me along, I don't think she does it because she thinks, oh, uh, you know, now Jason's going to get me into the, you know, into the hot 100. I don't, you know, <laughs> clearly she doesn't need me for any of that. I think she does it to to ground herself. And because I clearly enjoy just being in her world and getting to make music with her, I, there are few voices in the world that are that uh, what's the, versatile. You know, she can do anything with that voice that she wants to. And sometimes she'll just want to sing some crazy song. I mean, she wanted to sing a song called Getting Out from my first album. Mm. And I thought, I, okay, it's not the song I would have ever chosen for you to sing, but great. And she just came and she just screamed it out. It was the greatest thing in the world when we did it at a concert in Los Angeles. And you can find it on YouTube. You can find it on YouTube. Um, It's it's a very gratifying relationship, but I don't think either of us are sitting around waiting for the other one to call. I I hope we'll find ways to just, every once in a while, just keep collaborating because, you know, it's fun. Yeah. No, I mean, it seems very organic and like sort of a mutual admiration society in a nice way. Yeah. You know, again, I, I... Nothing makes me feel older than the fact that I'm, you know, working with Ariana. You know, I, I, I genuinely feel like, wow, I am, you know, just get out my walker and I'll, I'll, I'll go home from here. But uh, I think for her, I'm just, I'm that guy she worked with when she was, you know, 13 years old, and so it's just a continuum for her. It's fun. Mm. You should feel young. You're, you're relevant with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> You continue to be relevant. Well, I I don't know what you can or can't talk about, but I would love to hear about any projects you have ongoing now beyond the album, if there are shows you're working on, anything you can tell us. You know, with the album coming out uh, now, I've sort of been able to put a cap on a, a sort of very long period of time where I was waiting to say this thing that I have now finally said. Mm-hmm. Um so every month I'm still doing my concerts at Subculture, which is uh, down in the in, in Soho. And, uh, you know, I do a monthly residency there where I'm always bringing other singers to come and join me. And we get to just make whatever music we want to make. So sometimes I'll have a choir come sing and sometimes I'll have, you know, 27 string players come with us. And sometimes it's just me and Shoshana alone on stage or, you know, I, I it's a great place for me to explore music but also to explore relationships with the musicians that i love and so i I, i've gotten to do a great thing with that so we're you know we're 45 concerts into that now and uh we'll just keep going i guess until either the venue shuts down or i do um (laughs) and for anyone who's not in new york subculture is this great sort of intimate venue and it's uh definitely worth checking out if you come here no it's amazing um uh, but then there are the shows, uh, and so I'm writing. Uh, I'm writing a show with Billy Crystal, uh, which you know we're pretty far down the road. So I'm hoping that gets going soon. Uh, I've been working on a show for a while now called The Connector with Daisy uh, Prince, who did uh, Songs for a New World in the last five years with me, and a playwright named Jonathan Mark Sherman. Oh yeah, so uh, great. we've been doing that, and I love that piece. I'm hoping that it finds a home soon. It's a I talk about political. It's a very it's a very dark show but uh i i just love it i love what it says and i love how it says it so i'm hoping that gets out in the world 
And then the weirdest one is probably that I'm working on a, uh, a an adaptation of a a Chinese film, a sort of legendary uh, Chinese novel that was then turned into a, a, a film that all takes place in the world of Peking opera. Mm. Uh, so I've been working on that for about a year now, uh, and it's the hardest work I've ever done, and very, very beautiful and very scary. Uh, so that, I mean, you know, I'm probably still two years away from anyone hearing any of that stuff, but it's... Uh, it's a lot in my head these days. Well, and I feel like those three things alone show the scope of what you're able to do. <laughs> well, but that's always the point for me. I don't want the projects to all sound alike or to all feel – it's too hard to write things at the same time if they come from the same well. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I always try and make sure that the projects feel like something I haven't done before and something I'm not doing now because, you know – I'm happy with the work I did already. I don't need to do it again. <laughs> you know, I like the last five years. I don't need to revisit that particular style of writing. You know, I, I feel like I said what I needed to say with Parade and I said what I needed to say with Bridges of Madison County and Honeymoon in Vegas so that I can sort of move away from those genres into other places and explore other sounds and other ideas. Sounds good to me. Well, thank you so much for coming. It's really great to finally meet you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. Someone's playing the disco. Someone's making something burn. Someone plugged in a guitar and it's shooting fireworks. And I say, Melinda, when's it going to be my How We React and How We Recover is out from Ghostlight Records now. And if you're interested in exploring Jason's music further, which I highly recommend, uh, his website is jasonrobertbrown.com and you can find all of his projects from the past and some news about what's coming up there. If you're a fan of the Billboard on Broadway podcast, as always, please uh, give us nice reviews and stars on iTunes. You can find us on many other platforms too, though, including Spotify and Google Play and Stitcher. If you would like to find me on social media, I'm at Rebecca Millsoff on Twitter, at YouDownWithRMM on Instagram. You can always use hashtag Billboard on Broadway when saying anything nice about the podcast and hope to have you back next week. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 